0: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And we do encourage you to call Claudio Bossi in New York to learn more about uh, introductory offers on these three letters. Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com for more information and to sign up for our introductory offers. Well, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, they are American Manganese, Atocha Resources, Helio Resources, Marathon Gold, Metanor Resources, Merix Gold, Brazil Resources, American Bonanza, Paramount Gold and Silver, uh, Mill Rock Resources and Planjo Explorations in this week's show, my featured guest is currency expert Jack Crooks of the Weiss Organization. Jack believes the dollar has hit its lows and that we are likely heading into a multi-year bull market for the greenback, but is that a bad indicator for the price of gold? We'll hear what Jack has to say about gold, currencies, and much, much more. So you don't want to miss Jack Crooks coming up in about a half an hour. Also, in just a minute following our break, I will be talking to Philip Walford of Marathon Gold. This is a company with a gold property in Newfoundland that looks like it could be a very major discovery. If so... This low price stock could definitely make investors very wealthy. We have so much to talk about today and so little time to do it, so I'm not going to waste any more time talking to you myself. We are going to go to our first commercial break right now, and when we come back, we will hear what Philip Walford of Marathon Gold has to say, so don't go away.
1: American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth-quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth-quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011, American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Attention, gold stock investors. Brazil Resources Inc., trading as BRIZF on the OTCQX and as BRI on the TSX venture, is exploring three gold projects in the Garupi Gold Belt in Brazil. Surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits, BRI features top Brazilian geologists. Earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold directly in Brazil, led by recognized mining and financing executive Amir Ednani, co founder and chairman. Look us up now at www.brazilresources.com. That's Brazil Resources dot com or call us at 1-855-630-1001 that's 1-855-630-1001
0: Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp, MOZ on the TSX, is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its golden chest project in Idaho. A historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com.
1: Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol M-A-Y-G-F on the O-T-C-Q-X or M-A-Y on the T-S-X Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com gold in Nevada. The right stuff in the right place.
0: Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project, in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold. Gold and Silver Exploration.
1: Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Philip Walford. He is the president and CEO of Marathon Gold Corp. Philip is a professional geologist with over 30 years' experience in precious metals, base metals, and PGM mining and exploration. He has held senior management roles at a number of companies, working through the Americas um, for anaconda gold, uh, geomac exploration, lac minerals, and more porcupine mines, and Hudson Bay Exploration and Development Limited. The company trades uh, under the symbol MOZ in Toronto. There are um, 22.9 million shares outstanding, though that will soon increase by 8.6 million as the company just completed a $10 million financing. Uh, The stock is recently trading at around $1.33, giving the company a market cap of approximately $42 million. Welcome, Philip, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
3: Well, thank you Jay.
2: Really good to talk to you today. Um can you give our listeners a brief history of Marathon Gold? It's a it's a relatively new name, I believe.
3: Yes it is. It's new and old. Uh, it's a spin out from uh, Marathon PGM Corporation which was a company which a company that I helped to found. It was based on developing uh, a a platinum palladium, copper deposit in uh, northern Ontario near the town of Marathon hence the name. Um We were successful in uh, bringing that project to feasibility. We took it from a relatively small resource of about a million ounces of of platinum, palladium, and gold, and 200 uh, million pounds of copper. When we finished, we had uh, 5 million ounces of platinum, palladium, and gold in in resource and a billion pounds of copper, Mm. and half of that was in reserve. And at that point, which was uh in two thousand and ten um, stillwater mining thought that it might be nice for them to acquire mm-hmm. and uh they acquired the company and uh part of the deal was that we spun out marathon gold uh we took the gold asset, which was uh really um, pretty much uh, about the Valentine Lake project in Newfoundland, spun that out with six million dollars, and went on went on our way and now we're, of course, using our same crew pretty much, um, the same philosophy. Let's uh, rapidly develop resources into reserves, uh, get them up to a meaningful size, and either uh, put the mine in production ourselves or um, uh, do a transaction. But either way, we don't care. We're, we're fo- our focus is on rapidly building up resources into reserves. We don't do a lot of grassroots mining. Our focus is
2: really tight. Mm-hmm. Well, your shareholders must have done very well uh, given that kind of history, uh, that kind of success in exploration success uh, in Stillwater. Uh, I, I'm sorry, in um, in Marathon. Um, can you give our can you give our listeners some idea of how how well the shares did during that period of, of success?
3: Well, the, the shares. Um, I think when we finished. Uh, the stock went uh, you know fluctuated of course but uh, when we IPO'd uh in uh, 2000 in the summer of 2004 st- shares were were at about a 50 cent price and when we finished um or when we were taken over by Stillwater our, the total value to the shareholder was over four to over was close to $5 a share Mm-hmm. Uh, including the spin out. So mm-hmm. the shareholders did very well indeed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of our shareholders, uh, prior shareholders, retained their Marathon Gold stock. So we still have the same uh, friends as we did, as well as some new ones. Mhm.
2: Well, you have two projects, uh, two really two projects, but I I believe the flagship one would be um in Newfoundland known as the Valentine Lake gold project, is that right?
3: That's right. And uh it, it's the main one. Golden Chest our project in Idaho is about is a year behind so to speak. Uh, both these projects are joint ventures, but uh, Golden Chest, we certainly can acquire Uh, in the next year. We can acquire majority ownership of it. Mm -hmm. Um, What What Valentine is? When I saw it, I've got a lot of experience in gold, and um, what I saw there was uh, multi-million ounce potential. And uh, I think uh, that I'm going to be proven out, and others are starting
2: to see that now. Yeah, well. Yeah, I certainly saw some very, uh, very very solid assays that have been reported. I believe that uh, prospect uh, did have a historical resource on it, did it not? You're correct, it did. It
3: was um, about 400,000 ounces, but it was not, um, it was all in what's called inferred Mm -hmm. resource, which is the lowest quality you can get. And it was based on about 26 drill holes. It was not really uh, the kind of resource that, uh is is acceptable uh in Canada anymore and would not be acceptable in the in the United States either. Uh what we have now is a measured indicated and inferred resource uh based on historic drilling plus about 13, about 12,000 uh, 12,000 meters of drilling from last year. Uh and that gave us um about uh uh 580 Sorry, five hundred sixty-five thousand ounces, approximately. Uh, and all half, half measured and indicated, half uh, inferred. But now we've just completed uh, over just a little over twenty-five thousand meters of drilling, and we're adding on to that to that old resource. Um, and we really expect that uh, in the first quarter of this of 2012, we'll have a new resource out that will be. Uh, substantially larger than uh, the last one. Uh, Hard to say how how large it will be. I've actually done ore reserves for a a long time. I started off as a mine geologist, and one thing I learned was you never, whatever you're going to, if anybody asks you to guess what it's going to be, never do it because you're always going to be wrong.
2: (laughs) Well, of course, we would like to ask you what you think it's going to be, but uh, we won't do that understanding also, and we don't want to get you in trouble with regulatory folks, and we don't want you to mislead our our listeners either, so uh, we realize that until the truth machine goes down, until you do your statistics and, and your your thorough scientific analysis of, uh, of the resource, that it's not fair to really ask you or to report on it or speculate. However, that said, one of the things that I think is inevitable for investors to do is to try to get some sense of what the potential might be. So you have uh, now, as I understand it, you have a forty three one oh one resource of 565,000 ounces, uh, as you mentioned, half of it in the measured and indicated um, category, is that right? Right. That is a forty three one oh one now. I just wasn't aware that you had uh, come up to that level. I was only aware of the historical. Well, that's a good start, but if you can give us sense of, I mean, you probably have drill targets set up for 2012 already on this property that's right we we
3: have what's called the lefricon zone, and that's that's um the main one but uh the one that all the all the resources on however there there is a strike length of a, of at least uh seventeen kilometers, including Leprecon, that uh which has a strike length of about eight hundred meters as we know it right now mm-hmm. um and all of that's to, to explore and more to the point, um, to the, uh, along strike and attached to Leprechaun to the northeast is, uh, the, the Sprite area. That's what we call Sprite. And it's just a continuation of Leprechaun and it requires, it's got air, ore grade, uh, or sorry, it's got very good holes, some very good holes into it. It requires drilling next year to expand the Leprechaun deposit likewise going to the uh, southwest we were very um, fortunate this year in in uh uh finding refinding some some old and inf- uh open open uh, some old uh, surface showings and also discovering some new zones of our own on surface that had very high grades in them um, we've got some a few holes into them at the end of the year that's really just a no doubt uh they need this whole area needs a lot of drilling, and we're talking here about a length of about uh, uh, 3.6 kilometers, which is over two miles. Well,
2: that's the new discovery.
3: Well, that's everything that we've got to drill intensively. Okay. Uh, so 800 meters of that would be the leprechaun. Uh, leprechaun, and then the rest of it is is areas of what I would call high pros- high um, high probability of finding economic zones. Mm-hmm. We've got this. The
2: evidence is there, and the leprechaun. Uh, the most of those ounces that you have in the forty-three and on, the measured and indicated and, and otherwise, they come from the leprechaun. You said right, and, and is that most of that is from that eight hundred meters, or is that all of still, it? All, all, of, all it. of it. Okay. And is this deposit open at depth? Is this this is an open pit target that we're talking about here? It's
3: starting off as an open pit target. The previous operators are looking at it from an underground point of view. Um, I think it's it's uh, because of its structure. Uh, ideally, one would want to start off with this as an open pit. Uh, it, it has underground potential, no doubt about it. This is a type of deposit that we find in um, different parts of the world, including uh uh, Canada, like Timmins and Timmins and uh, the Motherlode District of California, where the gold deposits, the gold zones go to depth, and this is one of those, it's one I'm very familiar, the type I'm very familiar with, no doubt, but it's a lot easier to uh, get an open pit going than it is to get an underground mine going, it's a lot cheaper, uh, I, I look at underground as being phase two, and... Uh, I'm really excited about this because this is a, a zone this is something I I really didn't expect when I went to look at it. It's been I think overlooked in so many respects by mm-hmm.
2: Wow, it sounds really exciting. Uh, lots of lots of uh drilling ahead of you though, I see. Um have you done anything on metallurgy yet? Any any ideas of the metallurgical issues if if any there? Uh
3: certainly uh, we Last year, we did some initial metallurgical tests, which showed a recovery of uh, about 90%. Um, those were preliminary in nature. We're doing some more um, uh, right now, as we speak. There, we we have a, a more extensive testing under uh, going on right now. Uh, we really will probably have to do a bit more testing. Uh, metallurgy is always very important, and coming from a mining background, I I tackle the metallurgy right away because I want to know what we're dealing
2: with. Right. Yeah. So uh, the ninety percent is it sort of free milling? Is it easy? I mean, is there any any complicated, What sort of process might you envision then?
3: There's 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 two um, two methods that uh, we're looking at. One is uh, all of them include gravity because the gold here is coarse. Mm-hmm. So we get about forty to. Or approximately 50% of the gold. When you crush the rock up and run it uh, into the mill uh, through the mill, um, you can put in a gold trap and you can recover almost half of the gold right away. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because it saves on cyanide, but also uh, that gold is right there; it goes right into the pot, so to speak. Uh, the second step. There's two ways to go about it. One is to Float that is, use flotation cells and float the pyrite and the gold and mm-hmm. form a concentrate and then cyanide the concentrate. And the the, the other one is to do what's fairly standard, and that is cyanide the pulp, the rock that's been pulped up and has had the coarse gold removed and recover the rest of the gold from that.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Both are pretty standard. Sure. Uh, just to get a sense of the of the geometry of of what you have there so far, um, do, do you see high stripping ratios or low stripping ratios? Would you have a sense of that? And also, if you could give us a sense, I know it's not it's not possible to know exactly yet until you're more advanced. But what sort of grades you might you might expect?
3: Well, open th- pit. Sure. Well, I, I think um, when we look at the um, uh, the grades for the um, the grades for the uh, measured and indicated for Valentine for the last uh, for the forty three one hundred one we were looking at uh, about two point six grams per ton mm-hmm. um, less for the inferred about two grams so mm-hmm. my guess is that we're looking probably in the around the two and a half gram range mm-hmm. which is actually pretty good very good for an open pit mm-hmm. um, it would have a very high margin to it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly, these days when people are making money in some projects with under, with a gram and under. So, with with the real price of gold where it is today, what can you tell us about infrastructure issues there? Are there any, how how good is the infrastructure? You're going to have to spend a lot of money to, to get this into production from an infrastructure uh, vantage point. Uh,
3: a reasonable amount, but not uh, a huge amount. Uh, it's um, we're located on. Uh, um, on a on a, in a peninsula on a large lake which is a reservoir for a, a major hydroelectric dam mm-hmm. we can actually right now we're on generator power but what we would do is bring grid power in which mm-hmm. would save us a lot of money once yes. you know once out in an operation and the um project is accessible by road mm-hmm. uh, from uh it's it's about 50 60 kilometers away from uh a major town, two ma- a small town, and a major town, and uh, about ninety kilometers away in fr- uh, from the Trans Canada Highway in a major mm-hmm. uh, a major town. So it's it's pretty good mm-hmm. uh, location. It's we're not uh, way out in the bush somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Newfoundland is certainly a, a province that uh, can use some jobs, There's a lot of other places, I guess, in the Maritime provinces. So, uh, uh, what is the um what is the regulatory environment like in Newfoundland? Because I'm not that familiar. There doesn't seem to be that many gold projects there.
3: Uh, there's there's one uh, gold operation um, to the well to the north of us. Mm-hmm. Um, regula- regulations are pretty reasonable. We're in an area called the Central Mineral Belt of Newfoundland, the Island of Newfoundland, and this is an area that's had um, where the uh, it's been traditionally um, wood cutting. Uh, pulp and paper, lumber, and mining, and um, um, certainly the um, forestry has fallen on very hard times. So, mm-hmm. um, the government is very appreciative of what we've what we're doing there, and uh, we've we've got a lot of encouragement from uh, uh, senior levels of government in mm-hmm. in what we're doing. So, we're really uh, really pleased with. Uh, the way that they're they're uh focusing their attention on us and uh and assisting us as as much as they can mhm.
2: So it, it looks to me like you've got an awful lot of uh, target to shoot at there. Uh, I think you mentioned, uh, well, you, well, you pretty well laid it out. You've got, um, you know, what you have to do. What sort of a budget are you lining up for next year? And and while we're on the subject of budget, perhaps ask you about the recent raising of, of $10 million and how far that will take you in, in terms of your exploration project going forward.
3: We have a budget of um, uh, the budget, uh, Is approximately for the Valentine projects approximately $11 million, Mm -hmm. half of which has to be provided by our joint venture partner. Mm -hmm. Um, We uh, we've raised 10, so about half of that is going into Valentine. So that shows how much importance we have we put into Valentine. Mm -hmm. And uh, next year is going to be a really we'll start drilling right away. Uh, in January, the first or second week we 'll have two drills going and eventually three um, our our aim our goal for next year is to come out with a what 's called a preliminary economic assessment and that 's after the winter drilling mm. we will that'll be on based on the leprechaun pit mm. and uh, that 's the first step for a serious step in going to a scoping study and then to a feasibility study. So we're not
2: wasting any time here. We're moving right along. Yeah, I, I know your idea to prove up a large-scale deposit fairly quickly. It does not It does seem like you're moving along pretty well. And the PEM would be finished? And by when do you expect? The,
3: the preliminary economic assessment would probably be, it's hard to say when it would be completed because it, it's up to the um, the people, the the consulting firm that, that, sure. But our target is the second quarter. It mm-hmm. could be the third quarter, but it's not going to be. Um, it's not going to be. Uh, it's going to be as early as we can because we want to adjust our drilling for the rest of the summer accordingly. So we fill in any holes in the uh, in the uh, resource or expand it in certain directions so that we optimize the uh, pit design.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly does look very exciting what you've got going on there in Newfoundland, but let's switch to Idaho. You do have, I think you mentioned that it's probably a year behind your uh, your Newfoundland prospect, but talk to us about Idaho. You're also a 50% joint venture partner there, I think. Um, is that right?
3: That's correct. Uh, we're a 50% uh, joint venture with uh, a company called New Jersey Mining who are locally based, and uh, they had the project originally. Um, we do have the right to earn 60% of that this next year, by contributing 3.5 million into the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's up to our board to decide uh, whether, they, whether we'll do that or not, but it's certainly, uh, I know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they are the managers, and they're doing a great job. Um, we are drilling, we have two potential um, types of mining there as well. Uh, one is uh, open pit, and uh, we've got some very good results. In the open pit area, we're still drilling on it. We'll have to drill there next year. It's turning out to be a bit better than Newmont. Looked at it and, and did some holes in 1985 to 1990. Uh, what they got, what we're getting now, uh, what we're getting now is it seems to be larger and better grade mm-hmm. on surface. Underground, uh, we have access to the underground now. and It's in excellent condition. Uh, I mean, the mine closed about 1904, Mm-hmm. So there's no modern mining in it to speak of. Mm-hmm. There's high grade in the north end, um, high grade zones. Virtually no drilling. It's. Uh, I started my career underground, so I'm all excited about this thing. I've got it drilled off already in my head. <laughs> it's. Uh, it's got a lot of potential that, that property. Well, do you see
2: this as uh, as an open pit target and then underground later, or
3: or well, actually, probably at the same time. Mm-hmm. The you know what what. what the joint venture, uh, the concept that we have is that we would create enough uh, enough gold resource to justify a mill on site, mm-hmm. and um, use uh, mine mine during most of the year, mine mine on mine underground all year round, mm-hmm. mine on surface for probably about eight months of the year, mm-hmm. and keep the mill keep the mill flowing. At a constant rate, and uh, uh, that's our goal and um, uh, we're uh, we're right on target now actually we're doing better better than expected we're We're still drilling, even though the snow's coming down the hill so so there's a great job being done in uh, uh, keeping those drills going in some adverse conditions
2: is Is there a historical resource there at all
3: there's There is um, historic resource. Underground of uh, about a quarter of a million tons, grading about five grams, um, mm-hmm. about roughly 38,000 ounces of gold. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, restricted just to an area near near uh, the main level. Um, however, there are deep intersects now below that level that have uh, good grades in them. So we expect the resource to be underground resource this that we're doing. Uh, for the first quarter of next year to be larger than, than much larger than this mm-hmm. there's also an open pit resource as well which is historic and there was about uh, uh a gram and a, about one point three five grams per ton mm-hmm. uh, total ounces about fifty three thousand and uh inferred uh about a gram uh or five five point five million tons of the gram, about 174,000 ounces, but but I think that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. I think it's, you know, our philosophy is we're not going to go into a property unless we see we see that can, there can be at least a million ounces of uh, mm-hmm. resource and reserve in it, and I, I think this is going to take a little longer to get there, but not that
2: long. hmm well, you. Uh, I know this is a forward-looking statement, but you uh, talk about the potential to mine and produce from this property. How soon? What sort of time frame might that might that take?
3: For Golden Chest, it's it's <clears throat> it's, it's an interesting situation because um, New Jersey Mining actually has a mill uh, that can handle the material and has handled mm. the material mm. in Kellogg, which which is about uh, 20 miles away. We could truck. We could technically we could start mining high grade if we high grade if we once we had it identified. But uh, again, I think it's more likely that we'll wait. Well, it'll be about a three-year process to um, get this thing uh, uh, delineated and complete the engineering studies. Mm -hmm. What's important with the Golden Chest property is it's composed of two different types of of um, claims. One are the the mine is on a is on a series of patented claims, and so what those are are private land. So the rules are a little different. It's much easier to permit things on private land than it mm-hmm. is on public land. And we do have large large area of uh, load claims on public land surrounding it, which would require a lot of a lot of permitting. Uh, we really have a have a jump start by have by working on private land and in mm-hmm. fact so it it's our time can be,
2: is going to be cut down yeah permitting well that's good it it seems like you have an awful lot going on here philip i um it is an exciting prospect for a company with a with still a very low market cap. i think this is where the opportunity is honestly in the junior mining sector, the guys that can find. Gold and find the, the the metals, and you certainly have had uh, a track record of success. So, uh, of course, the past is uh, no evident is no prologue to the future, but nonetheless, uh, we do like to go with people who have had success in the past. It's it's very interesting. Is there anything else you think our listeners should should know before we conclude our conversation today?
3: Oh, well, our, our, more to reiterate, our, our we do have some grassroots properties, but our focus. Is on properties that we can develop rapidly uh, are rapidly into resources and reserves, and our our goal is to is to appreciate is to have our stock price rise based on new based on increased resources that's mm-hmm. in, in the ground. Mm-hmm. This uh, January mid February we'll have two resources coming out. All 43101 compliant. Uh, one, there'll be an underground um, and, a, and an open pit resource on Golden Chest. There'll be a, non, a global resource on Valentine and the first open pit resource on Valentine on the Leprechaun deposit. So if that's that's going to be pretty exciting. Those are two really important uh, numbers to time numbers to look at when we bring them out,
2: and I have no doubt they're going to add value to our company. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly sounds very promising, and I, I would guess that uh, this year, well, since this year has not been very kind to the junior sector, and now we're at the end of the year with tax loss selling and so forth, that, uh, that people might want to take a real close look at your story. I, I know I'm going to take another uh, another look and, and sort of try to update my my subscribers as well on this, on this story, because I think it is really... A very compelling one. I want to thank you very much, Philip, for being with us, um, and I uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon and, and keep up to date with what's going on. So thank you very much for being with us.
3: Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's uh, It's been a pleasure, and uh, I, uh, I'm more than happy to talk to you anytime.
2: Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because coming right back, uh, we're going to be with Jack Crooks. He's a senior analyst and currency expert. Jack believes the dollar has bottomed out now and is ready for a prolonged multi-year bull run. What impact might that have on the gold price uh, and your gold share investments as well as overall, uh, your overall investment strategy? We'll get Jack's ideas on that, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Jack Crooks.
1: American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO
0: Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last 6 years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to AngloGold Shanti's navats jab gold mine for updates check out helioresource.com
1: Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol M-A-Y-G-F on the O-T-C-Q-X or M-A-Y on the T-S-X Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada. The right stuff in the right place. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, Please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO W Welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me today Jack Crooks. He's the senior analyst and currency expert and trader for Money and Markets. Uh, He was instrumental in introducing individual investors to the convenience and power of options on currency investments, which makes him uh, really ideal, uh, has made him really ideal to head up the Weiss Research Currency Trading Services. Jack has more than 20 years of experience trading currencies and related investments, and his real world track record has been very strong. Before founding his uh, currency, his current firm, uh, Black Swan Capital LLC, Jack established Ross International Asset Management, which specializes in uh, trading currencies, bonds, global stocks, for individual investors. And previously, he served as the general manager of two additional firms that focused on trading the currency futures, foreign exchange spot, and commodities markets. And Jack holds a bachelor's in science uh, in finance and accounting and a master's degree in economics and an MBA in finance. Welcome, Jack, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you for having me, Jay really interesting with your focus uh largely on uh on currencies to a great extent so we do want to talk to you today about why you think uh the probability that the US dollar has bottomed um this i think is a very important issue for investors to uh to to uh, have a sense of which direction currencies are going because it does seem to have uh, quite a correlation with other investments generally speaking so um, you know trading options in futures markets is something that we don 't talk about too much in this show, I guess partly because it 's never been something that i 've gotten into uh, to any great extent. Um, uh, I have written some covered calls from time to time, made a little bit of income, but never really used uh, the markets to speculate or to hedge very much. Um, so, but for now, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that and, and how individual investors can avail themselves to to your services and and to uh, using these strategies in general. But for now, I do want to focus today primarily on the reasons you think why the dollar may have bottomed. And as I say, I think that's a very important topic for this show because many of our listeners are hard money advocates. Uh, they kind of believe that the dollar is is going to disappear into the dustbin of history, is the way I've heard it put. And these folks also tend to be believers in hyperinflation. And I continue to think that, you know, which way this is going to go is very, very important in terms of what kind of investments you make. Would you would you uh, agree with that? That's extremely
4: important. I would totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, the you know the dollar is still the major the world reserve currency, <clears throat> and if you get the dollar right, given the relative correlations that have been very very solid over the last several years, um, I think you put
2: you in, in the ballpark of making your other decisions right. Yeah, that's I, I couldn't. I, I think that's absolutely right because we see when we've seen recently at least when the dollar is strong, we see commodities and stocks weak and vice versa. Right. That's exactly right. And it's sometimes called risk trade-on, risk trade-off, which seems sort of, sort of um, peculiar to me. But in any event, uh, let's, let's get into uh, this, this whole notion of um, the dollar bottoming. What are you suggesting the, bo- the dollar may have bottomed against? Are you looking at the dollar index?
4: That's right. I'm looking at the dollar index, which is made up of you know, six major currencies, one of them being the Swedish crone um, and not the Australian dollar, which probably should be in that basket. It includes the euro, the Japanese yen, British pound, uh, Swiss franc, Canadian dollar, and Swedish crone um, makes up the dollar index, and so that's what we're referring to there in terms of its bottoming. That's the measurement tool.
2: Yeah. I'm looking at, uh, if I look at a long-term chart of the, of the index, uh, you see these long periods of time, you know, these bull markets and bear markets. And I want to get into that a little bit, but it seems to me that the general direction, though, for the dollar, if we go back to, ni- actually, I guess, to two 2000, actually, if you go back further, back to about 1980, the, the general direction has been down for the dollar with uh, lower highs and lower lows. Would you agree with that? That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, now I'm looking also Jack at the um uh at the chart and it seems to me that something like seventy one thirty eight on the on the um index might be a, a line la- a line in the sand, or do you have any particular you know, sort of base um or support level that you would look at for a long yeah, time?
4: Yeah, that old low uh, right in the area you said 71 range um, mm-hmm. really is is really the line in the sand. Um, mm-hmm. If the dollar breaks down through there, um, I think my global thematic view um, is is in big big trouble. I mm-hmm. don't see it revisiting that area. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen a we've seen a big correction back very close to it, mm-hmm. um, but we've seen these before in the dollar index. Um, in fact, the 92 94 area, the bottom, actually, the dollar actually bottomed. In, in around '92, became retraced almost 90, almost 90% of that move, mm. and then rallied for another uh, seven years or so. So mm. it's it's a very tricky thing to to do in here, and it's typical of markets, um, and especially uh, something like this, a major asset class, when you know initial rally, then it comes back, and everybody says, "See, I told you, it's still in a major bear market." Mm-hmm. And, and as you know, that's the way Mr. Market uh, fools mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. And I. Yeah. And I, and I just. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and the, the, one of the validations that we have for this view, and, and we can get into that in deeper, um, is just the price action in, in gold. And I know that you're a uh, big advocate of gold, and have been, mm-hmm. you know, great on gold. Um, gold, gold blew off, in, you know, in September '09 to a, a massive rally, as, as you know, all-time high. Um, but the dollar did not make a new low, and so uh, to, to us, it suggests that this problem or this this gold rally is much more of a, a global fiat currency, and the dollar is actually not as weak um, as everybody, the the people that say it's going into the dustpan of history uh, Mm -hmm. would say. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. I think the dollar would have made an all-time low as gold blew off. That correlation has changed, and that's a Mm -hmm. significant one. Mm
2: -hmm. So, in other words, you see gold in a bull market against all paper money or all fiat money, is that it? Yeah, without a doubt. I I think think you'll you'll find that. But that the dollar may be strong vis-a-vis other currencies though stronger than many people think.
4: Yeah, I think it just suggests there's money coming into the dollar and into gold at the same time, and we're not talking about a rush of hot money, but just in general, I think longer-term, bigger portfolio flows, given the risk in the world, are starting to flow
2: back into the dollar, and that's, that's part of our global macro view. Mm-hmm. Well, these currency trends, um, as you pointed out in some things you've written recently, last for a fair length of time. How long do these bull markets and bear markets in the dollar generally last? Um, it's interesting. We've had, if, if, if
4: I'm right on this call, of the last bear market in the dollar. There have been three bear markets since the dollar began floating, and it began. What that means is trading against uh, the other currencies based on supply and demand, as opposed to being fixed. And that happened back in 1971 when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, the dollar went into a about a seven-year bear market. Um, and then it had another uh, seven-year um, bear market, uh, in fact, and this would be the third uh, seven-year <laughs> bear market mm-hmm. uh, in, in the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, That is an interesting time frame. Again, uh, a marking of 2008, the, the credit crunch low period, as I refer to it. The dollar actually bottomed exactly the same day they came in and saved Bear Stearns, they meaning the, the U.S. government. Um, it hasn't... Uh, and hasn't made a new low, although it has tested it. So the, the time frame, the time frame's right, and the global macro event is right. Um, in hindsight, we look, we look and see. I say the gift of hindsight. We never know till it happens. Yeah. Um, we go back and look at some major global macro events, and they've usually been triggers for these these changes in these longer term trends um, so it's been a it is fascinating the way it goes, but as we talked about earlier it's never easy because uh, as, as I said if you if you had bought this dollar in 2008 in March and, and it rallied up initially you'd thought wow I'm, I'm a hero and it's re- retraced almost ninety percent just as it did uh, back in early 1990s so mm-hmm you're not going to be holding on to onto it there. So that's why I say the gift of hindsight. Yeah, I think the, glo- the global macro
2: events seem to be shaping up to suggest um, the bottom could be in. Well, we want to get into those global macro events so we can kind of get behind your thinking on this, Jack. But uh, you, you mentioned major turning points, and so I'd like to go over some of those, if you don't mind. If we look at, as you pointed out, a major one, actually it was a new regime, a new era, when Nixon uh, took us off the gold standard, the international gold standard that really provided a, fl- uh, a fixed rate uh, currency system, and then we went to a floating rate regime. And you know, I can remember in taking my economics classes, uh, my MBA classes back in those days, we were taught how this was going to be so so beneficial because the markets would always be in equilibrium you know and we you remember how it was um i don't know if you if you remember jack if you're as old as i am but back in the fixed rate regime when i was a really young guy there was there would tend to be you know problems that would arise from that because countries wouldn't uh, obey their disciplines that they needed to and so their currencies would start to run and people would dump their currencies and demand gold and of course, that's exactly what the United States did in 1971, and uh, we we wanted to have our guns and butter and our our cake and eat it too, and not have to worry about taxing people to pay for a war and for socialism and all that. And it doesn't work very well. But let's uh, let's get on to some of these major turning points that I, that you've mentioned in in something you've written recently. Uh, 1971 to 1978 was a seven-year Bear market, and that's when Nixon, of course Nixon took us off the gold standard, and that was so that he could print, print, and print, inc- uh, increase the money supply to pay for Vietnam and other things, right? Uh, That's exactly right. I think that that's very very well summarized. Um, The dollar was, you know, on a relative
4: basis, extremely overvalued. And uh, once it started to float and find its subjective value in the market, um, then uh, it it came off the cliff to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Um, The major event that led to... Uh, the rally in the dollar, um, and again, we're, we're probably similar in age than those nasty inflation years, uh, of the 70s, um, just ugly interest rates, you know, at 20%, over 20%, and a guy named Paul Volcker came in and instituted some very, very tough love, needed tough love for the U.S. economy, Mm -hmm. uh, and ratcheting up uh, interest rates and, Basically, you know, forcing the U.S. into a major recession and letting the market wash away the dead wood, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I do think um, very much that set the groundwork for some healthy growth, uh, for a change, uh, in the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the dollar reacted accordingly. Um, Not only did you have a lot of short-term money rushing into the dollar at that major event of Volcker coming in because of the rising interest rate yield on the dollar, you had a lot of money flow coming in from overseas when people would say, hey, this is a new day. We want to get involved in the U.S. manufacturing. Um, It was kind of a rebound of the whole um, rust belt at the time, Um, Mm -hmm. and we had a lot of foreign direct investment flow. So we had two things going for the dollar that usually lead to a sustainable market for any currency, mm-hmm. um, rising yields, uh, and uh, foreign direct investment coming in, and mm-hmm. that's what we saw um, on yeah. that
2: event. Yeah, well, Jack, if I might interrupt, I remember very well that pain. My first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage in yeah. 1981, and uh, and but if you looked at the real rate of interest, I mean, and the inflation rate, I have always some problems with the government's numbers these days, even maybe more than back in those days, but... but um, you know, the real rate of, uh, the real interest rate, what you were actually getting above the consumer price index was very substantial in those days, wasn't it? And in fact, as I recall, it might have been the highest real rate since the, somebody said, since the Civil War. I think I'm not sure about that, that those numbers, but
4: I do mm-hmm. I, I agree, and that was that was very much part of it, um, which is interesting. Back then, people used to con- concern themselves, traders, uh, with real rates of
2: return, mm-hmm. um, which in the modern era that has gone away. But that was a, another powerful factor. Indeed. Why is that, Jack? I mean, why would we not be concerned? I'm an investor. If I'm a saver. And I see I have a five percent inflation rate, and they're giving me two percent interest rates. Why would I save my money and get and get, you know, in other words? But if I'm, you know, if I've got a fifteen percent rate, and my inflation rate is ten percent, or eight or nine, as it was back in those days, I'm getting a real return of six percent. So. I,
4: I, I agree that I think the average investor in terms of his um, cash holdings and investment does consider that. I was mm-hmm. referring primarily to currency traders of late in mm-hmm. the last several years in this cycle. It's been a pure liquidity flow regardless of what local inflation rates are, so they've been looking past that uh, yeah. in, in the modern era of, of trading currencies, but yeah. I didn't mean to imply uh, otherwise And Yeah, okay. Flavors.
2: All right, so let's. I'm sorry, I, I sort of diverged there, but so Volcker really caused the bull market by making real rates of interest rise and and making a, restoring confidence in the dollar essentially, didn't he? In he very much did. Mm-hmm. And then we went uh, from 1980 to 1985, and we had something called the Plaza Accord. Talk to us about the Plaza Accord and how did that turn the dollar bearish? Sure. The Plaza Accord was um
4: basically the G7 countries getting together and and saying, "Hey, the dollar is too high. It wouldn't isn't that a wouldn't that be nice?" Um mm-hmm. we got together and said so the dollar was too high, but implicitly, I believe it was just a um, a gathering to punish Japan a bit. Um, as you know, Japan was the world's major superpower creditor, um blowing and going and taking over everything very much like China is today. So the So the implicit implicit reaction was that it increased the value of the Japanese yen as the dollar came off the cliff. Um, Again, looking for trade advantage um, was part of this game and to Mm -hmm. try and slow down um, uh, corporate Japan. And and it succeeded
2: uh, in a very big way. Um, And the dollar went into another seven-year bear market. Yeah, that was the second of the seven-year bear markets that you were referring to before then. Well, what turned things around in 1992 then? We had a 10-year bull market. What what caused uh, money to flow into the U.S., uh, into the dollar back the major, in 1992? Yeah,
4: the major event there, again, with the with the uh, gift of hindsight, so to speak, uh, was the tech boom. You know, we had a, a big technology stock boom and a technology sector boom in the U.S. that started, um, and that led to... Um, really just a, a just an upcycle in the global economy. We got through that recession of 90, um, and it also led to a lot of foreign direct investment coming into the U.S., wanting to get access to, to these technology sectors in the U.S., both in the stock market, major portfolio flows in the stock market, uh, but also portfolio flows in the real assets uh, was a major benefit uh, for the U.S. dollar Um, And we also had rising interest rates as, you know, as goes along with an upswing in Mm -hmm. the economy. So there were both those factors again were in play. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hot hot money coming in for yield and foreign directed investment coming in to get access to uh, stocks uh, and technology.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah and we certainly at that time unlike now uh consumers and um well, consumers and uh, had a lot of credit lines available and they were still uh, able to pay back um pay back loans as they were issued so we had the ability to increase credit was credit increasing a lot during that time frame I think it probably was um it really ramped up in 2000 um
4: but mm-hmm. that it it was starting to uh, on a, on a relative terms yes but nothing like we saw uh in the 2000 time frame which actually was a uh was the was the major global event for a decline in the US dollar that yeah. ramped up in credit and mm-hmm. uh, we saw a break in this te- you know tech bubble the Nasdaq broke and everybody realized that all these um e e E companies trading on the Nasdaq had no earnings whatsoever, um and were just eating through their cash flow. So reality struck. Um, and it was another situation in which markets um, move much further than their underlying fundamentals um, mm-hmm. and um, this was the case and you started off a little bit in the conversation saying, you know, we had learned um, A plus B equals C in our financial analysis and mm-hmm. in markets uh, it doesn't always work that way. We get the overshoot and undershoot due to uh, psychology in markets and that was a mm-hmm. big one, um, both for the stock market and the U.S. dollar and um, as you know, the, the the bubble burst, and at that time um, we had um, Mr. Greenspan at the Fed, and he was very concerned that we'd go into a global deflation, mm-hmm. uh, given the break there. And so the emergency interest rate down to 1% and really opening up the floodgates, and that's really when the credit credit system just started ramping up in in a big way and they virtually uh the fed um through its monetary policy made credit free and allowed these um, investment banks and wall street to
2: create all these uh, these monsters that have come back to bite us during this yeah. entire period. You know, that, as I recall, that also Ben Bernanke was very concerned about a Japanese style a deflation or a 1930s repeat, and he wrote a paper deflation, making sure it doesn't happen here. And it was then when he earned his nickname, Helicopter Ben. But uh, so back at, in 2001, then we started, as you as you say, when the dot com bubble or the um, the, uh, uh, the tech bubble burst. Uh, we started then with a seven year bear market from 2001 2008. So that's right. That that, that is then when Mr. Greenspan. Through caution to the wind and just pumped money like mad into the system. And during that bull market, uh, or that bear market in the dollar, what happened then?
4: Um, it was intensified, the bear market, because this is a, an important <laughs> fact, um, with the relationship between the U.S. and and China. It became very much a symbiotic relationship in which we would just create more and more credit in the system and subsidize basically uh, the U.S. consumer uh, Mm -hmm. by homes and by goods from overseas from China. So China would ship us goods and we'd ship them boatloads of dollars. um, And it created that massive surplus uh, on the other side of the World, um, which meant a massive dollar supply is going out the window and he- wasn't coming back. Um, so that helped to cheapen the dollar. That added to it in a very big way, and also played into the um, the credit crunch. We're really, I think, we are now in the next major change, uh, sea change in the global economy. China was. Mm-hmm. Big- big part of that along with uh, the acquiescence of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody seemed to love that symbiotic relationship because China would put more and more money back into our, uh, the credit markets because it had no place to go with all those surpluses, buying more treasuries, subsidizing mm-hmm. the U.S. consumer's interest rate. so mm-hmm. he bought more and more houses and more and more goods and leveraged more. And we know the end of the story. It's the credit crunch.
2: Yeah, and I don't quite understand, Jack, what I still don't quite, can't quite connect is the theory from my MBA days that said that, that if we would just have floating rates that we wouldn't have these perpetual surpluses or deficits in trade, that somehow trade would work itself out. Why has this not happened? Well, I think you get, because a couple
4: of things, number one, a place like China suppresses their currency in a very, very big way. Mm-hmm. They've, they've never had anything relative to a market rate, um, yeah, some some estimates 20%, I've seen as high as 50% undervaluation mm-hmm. of the Chinese currency. Um, and because of the fact that that, that happened throughout Asia, there was an implicit suppression of the currencies in these countries that were based on an export model where the U.S. was based. Based on very much on a consumer market model um, and the difference is they prefer lower currencies but in that process, they create very, very big trade surpluses, and we create very, very big trade deficits, which goes to another factor that the country with the world reserve currency is kind of uh, obliged to run these chronic current account deficits because they have to supply the world effectively with the dollar as the, mm-hmm. you know, the lubricating vehicle for markets. Mm-hmm. But the but the Asian model. Pure exports uh, intensified that problem, so the whole floating, um, finding its right way in the market, was really suppressed because of this, the activities of, of other countries around the world and the U.S. It, it, you know, to a great degree, implicitly wanted a weaker dollar, mm-hmm. reduce financial markets. So it was, a, it was a combination of those factors mm-hmm. uh, po- at
2: different policy levels that didn't allow the market to uh, work properly. Yeah. So then comes Lehman Brothers, 2008 uh and um the margin clerks begin to call; they want their loans repaid, or people are finding themselves insolvent. They have to sell whatever they own uh, and go out and buy dollars and We start um the dollar bottoms in two thousand and eight the way it looks at least uh, now we're in two thousand eleven almost two thousand and twelve. The dollar is, seems to be finding a base here at least, and Jack, you believe that we the odds favor a new a new turn, uh, and I want to ask you for you know all those reasons that you talk about. I, I would gather that one of them might simply be that we have these sort of seven year, eight year, ten, seven to ten year trends, huh?
4: That's part of it. It's it's the least of it, though. Um, yeah, the timing is very interesting. Um, I'm not a cycle person. I just make I just point out that coincidence there. Sure. Um, the biggest part of it is, um, I think, when I say the global, the credit crunch is a sea change in the global economy. Um, I think what, what we're, we're going to see is, is just a, a massive amount of defaults around the world. The eurozone's in the midst of that process, and they keep trying to save them, but I think eventually it, it, it will we'll see defaults, you know, major mm-hmm. country defaults, and that process um, of major country defaults means deflationary or dollar credit leaving the globe, so to speak. So dollar supply and is very deflationary, and in a deflationary environment led by or part and parcel to defaults coincidental, um, it tends to be very good for the world reserve currency. And the reason that is by virtue of the world reserve currency has very deep capital markets. Mm-hmm. The credit crunch was a perfect example. Um, I think a lot of people were able to call The credit crunch Saw the problems coming um, But what happened During that day That the Lehman Went bankrupt And they saved Bear Stearns that day mm-hmm. The dollar went Into a very big rally And that confused A lot of people Because the U.S. Is in such terrible shape mm-hmm. And that's part and parcel To what happens To money flow And how it can benefit A world reserve currency People can't hide In other big portfolio flows Have to come and hide In the deepest markets In the world mm-hmm. And um, the U.S. Capital markets Are the deepest treasuries uh, in fact, are the deepest. So if an international player uh, with big capital wants to hide in the U.S., he has to buy the dollar in order to get access to treasuries. He may hate the dollar. Mm-hmm. So that money flow process uh, led to a very, very big bounce in the U.S. dollar. And I think that that, in general is really the, the powerful move that we're seeing a bit in slow
2: motion now of money coming back and sinking uh, from the global economy. Mm-hmm. in other words the United States dollar is not the Zimbabwe dollar or whatever it's a it's a completely different market so i think a lot of people make uh, sort of like to compare the US dollar with the Zimbabwe dollar or even the the uh the the Deutschmark during the Weimar Republic or during that time frame and suggest that just simply printing money uh when you say printing money of course putting money into the banks uh and as i can see Jack uh, from what I read of the 1930s much the same is happening now money is going into the banks but it's not being lent out that's correct and I and I
4: think that's part of this process of just a, a sea change in sentiment um, and um, and you're seeing private sector um, trying to delever uh, these this massive leverage and you're also seeing a, a very big demand for holding cash um, at every individual probably around the world and every institution around the world. So, that, so even though they're creating more, they've created a massive amount of reserves, i.e. the Federal Reserve and other central banks, um, there's many more reserves, excuse me, um, many more of these reserves are being held and not getting into the real economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an event because of coming liquidation of, the, of this really overbuilt credit um, that will continue. Mm -hmm. And I I do think that's the difference, and that's where I differ on this idea of hyperinflation versus deflation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really my point of difference there. I think at some point when we get through this cycle, if we have the amount of reserves we have in here now, but I think a lot of this will be worked off because of this uh, uh, deflationary process. But if we don't, um, I think the hyperinflation argument makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
2: Well, I know in, uh, uh, Bob Hoy, who we've had on this show, an analyst out of Vancouver, has talked about, uh, he's gone back and looked at the last 300 years, and uh, he believes that this is the sixth major credit contraction that began with Lehman Brothers uh, that we've had in the last 300 years for the senior currency. Previous to the U.S. dollar, it was the pound sterling. and And he makes this point that in each and every case, the senior currency – Uh, during these contraction periods, gets stronger. I think the same sort of dynamics that you're talking about here, Jack. You know, we we do have to take a commercial break here, Jack. uh, There's much more to talk to you about. For one thing, I'd like to try to get a sense as to, you know, you, you talk a little bit about the, the trends and, and what happens and what some of the signs might be that should give you uh, or that could help give us a sense of when it, the bottom is in and when we might be on to a, a trend change, a trend reversal, if you will, uh, one of these longer-term secular trends, I guess, uh, seven years, uh, seven to ten-year Uh, bull market now possibly for the dollar so when we come back from the break i'd like to ask you jack what uh you know what you see here that that makes you uh think that we probably have bottomed and we're not going to head back down as many of the uh, hyperinflationists would suggest so uh if you can come back with me uh, over the other side of the break jack sounds great okay we'll be right back folks don't go away lots more from jack crooks